family of God, I can't tell you what a joy it is for me to look out upon all your faces this morning and to have an opportunity to share the word of the Lord with you today. I must say, uh, at least I didn't have to wrestle for a title this morning. Uh, you know, sometimes uh, preparing a word, getting the title is one of the most uh, difficult things. Um, it can drop in your spirit immediately, but sometimes there's a wrestle. And I'm very pleased that this morning we will be sharing the third installment of our journey through the book of 1 Timothy together. And it's my privilege to share with you the entirety of the chapter. And uh, I must warn you, there's some meat here. So I hope you brought your seatbelts with you. You're going to need it. Um, and, uh, you know, on the surface, there actually seems to be some of the most controversial scriptures in the New Testament in 1 Timothy 2. But going deeper into it, I was mightily encouraged with uh, what I found. But with that being said, I'd just like to say a short word of prayer, and then we're going to launch into this together. So, Father, I thank you for this opportunity to share your word again this morning. I pray for your grace. I pray for your help. I lean upon you, and I look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Wonderful. So, we are not going to leave out one single verse of 1 Timothy 2. We're going to go through the whole portion together. I'm not going to read it in its entirety first. We're going to read it in its entirety, but bit by bit, because there's so much there. I don't want to, by the end of 1 Timothy 2, I've lost you because you've already kind of forgotten where we started. So we're going to go through it in bite-sized chunks and break that down, and I trust it will be a blessing to you. A couple of things I want to mention is it is very important that we also understand the cultural context of the city of Ephesus in that day and time. Even today, we have a cultural context. If I was to say to someone I knew, brother, may the light in your house burn brightly, there would be a dual meaning there because I would be speaking about his Christian testimony. But someone in South Africa at this time would also know that I'm referring to Ashcom, sorry, Eskom, and that... It's a struggle to keep our lights on at the moment. We don't need to say that to each other because we're all in it together. But someone reading what we have, well, someone reading that in 2,000 years' time, listen, I'm sure the Lord will be back way before then, they would not necessarily know the context of what I was saying. They would understand the light of Christ, but not necessarily the light physically speaking. And so there's a lot of context in a book written to the church of 2,000 years ago. There is eternal truth, but there's also cultural context, which I'm going to go through to help bring a greater understanding to what Paul was actually speaking about in general. All right. So, I'm also going to be referring to other scriptures, and not just staying in the book of 1 Timothy 2, because it is, according to Psalm 119 verse 160, the entirety of God's word that is truth. The entirety of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. And so there is great richness in referring to the word concerning the word and not to take anything in its own isolation. So with that being said, we're going to move into our first point and read our first portion of the book of 1 Timothy 2. And my first point is our call to prayer and intercession. And reading 1 Timothy 2 verse 1 to 3, let's do that together. It's going to be up on your screen if you are also welcome to read in your own Bible or handheld device if you prefer. 
It's the New King James Version, and it reads as follows. Therefore I exert, exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Now Paul clearly states a prayer initiative be made by all of God's people for all men on an ongoing basis, not as a once-off. And what is specific here is Paul is saying all men, not just the people we want to pray for or the people that we would prefer to pray for. In fact, it's our call by Jesus' own encouragement. In Matthew 5 verse 44, Jesus is ministering the Sermon on the Mount and in speaking his teaching and in teaching his teaching, he says this, He says, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So by Jesus' own command, we are being told to pray for all people, to pray for those that we want to pray for, but I would even say especially for those that in our natural self, we would prefer not to pray for. We would even perhaps feel like they're not worthy of being prayed for because they've treated us in such a manner or they've conducted themselves in such a manner. They are even more in need of prayer than those for whom we would prefer to pray for, to be very honest. And in fact, we as Christians need to be the pattern breakers of this world. This world runs according to a pattern. The pattern is tit for tat. It is you do this to me, I will therefore do this to you. It is out of the mind of an unregenerated person that this world runs. Now, unregenerated is someone who hasn't given their life to the Lord, someone who's not born again. But Jesus himself breaks the pattern over our life when he comes in and saves us. Therefore, if he has broken the pattern over our life, should we not also be pattern breakers for those around us? You know what? We might say, I'm having such trouble because of so-and-so. Or because of this person or that person. Well, how much have you prayed for so-and-so and and this person or that person? How much have you prayed they would be broken out of the pattern of the world to which they are subject? When you are subject to Christ and the pattern of the kingdom. Should we not conduct ourselves in a greater and more worthy manner before the Lord? Because he first broke the pattern over us. Our call is to pray for all men not just those for whom we would prefer to pray. Now, moving on, it goes in verse 2 to say that we should be praying for kings and all those who are in authority. Now, that doesn't mean we agree with them. It doesn't mean we support them. But it does mean we pray for them. And the reason is that we can then live out our Christian life in peace. We can conduct ourselves, displaying our Christian message, but we can live in peace and we can live our Christian lives in peace as God would answer our prayers on behalf of kings or those in government, those in authority. As I said, that's not to accept any wrongdoing they might be going about. Raise your voice on unrighteousness and injustice, but pray for them, for in God answering that prayer, peace will be extended to you. You know that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart in Moses' time and he softened Cyrus' heart in Israel and Nehemiah's time. 
And there's a beautiful scripture in Proverbs 21 verse 1 that says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. So those in authority are in God's hands. And we can go to the throne of God in Jesus' name, praying for those in authority. And if they do not submit to which way the Lord would lead them, he will remove them. But it's our responsibility to pray for all men and those who are in authority. Amen. Wonderful. Now, my second point is his heart for all people. We're immediately going to carry on reading our text. 1 Timothy 2 verse 3 to 7. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. God's heart is that all people would be saved. He hasn't set aside a specific few to say, I set these ones aside to be saved and these ones, they will not be saved. He desires that all men be saved. Now in Romans 9 verse 22, there is a scripture that says, He endures long with the vessels prepared for destruction. And you have this idea just in that scripture that maybe God made some people to be saved and some to be destroyed. But in Romans 2 verse 15, we are told that each human being, each person is given a conscience. And so a vessel prepared for destruction is very much our own preparation of either accepting or refusing the gospel or at the very least refusing the voice of our God-given conscience as humanity. And so God's heart is that all men would be saved. In fact, in Ezekiel 18 verse 23, it says, do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live. And there we see the heart of the Father, even in this Old Testament scripture. His heart displayed that all men would be saved. Yet, this salvation is only, only, and I say it again, only found in Jesus Christ. There is one mediator, the scripture here says, between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is no addition to the gospel. There is no mixing our faith with another faith or another religion or another God. There is no other name given among men under heaven by which we can be saved. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. That is the truth by which we live and that is the truth by which we must live. And we are to share the gospel unapologetically. It's the truth. But yet we are to share it in love. Don't beat people with the truth. Share the truth, but share the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. Love the person you are speaking to. Not to have a heart of judgment towards them. Not a, like a vindictive stance of feeling like you're better than them. God had mercy on you. You have mercy on others. Love them enough to share the truth, the uncompromising truth. But share the truth in love that there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. All right, now it might seem I'm going very quickly. But the reason is my third point is pretty much a sermon in itself. 
All right, so we are now going to move into a lengthy portion of Scripture that has much in it. And before we read this portion of Scripture, I want to give you a little bit of background concerning the church at Ephesus, but also the city of Ephesus in general. Because as I said in my introduction, the cultural context of Ephesus in this time in the Roman world has great bearing on what Paul was writing to Timothy concerning his stewardship and leadership in the church of Ephesus. So Ephesus was a city dedicated to Artemis worship. Artemis was a goddess, a goddess of a whole range of different things, fertility, animals, uh, childbirth. There was all sorts of things under the banner of her worship. And the city of Ephesus had a temple complex dedicated to Artemis that took 220 years to build from beginning to end. A huge temple complex. And so a lot of the people coming to Ephesus were religious pilgrims. The tourists going there were religious pilgrims. And they were going there to worship at the temple of Artemis. But there's something else that the Ephesian church was very well known for. And that was witchcraft. We are told in uh, the book of Acts chapter 19 that the people of Ephesus brought their magic books together to be burned and destroyed. And that the sum, the monetary sum of what those books were worth was astronomical, would be in the millions of rands today. But witchcraft was just as deeply rooted in Ephesus as goddess worship. Now let me tell you, where you have goddess worship and witchcraft, you have a very strong rise of feminism. Even today in the Wiccan movement, which is a modern day witchcraft movement, there is the exaltation of goddess worship and feminism. It is the unnatural domination of a woman. It is just as bad for a man to be unnaturally domineering in any relationship or context. That's not the way God wants us to be in healthy relationships. But you must understand the cultural context of Ephesus in the day there were elements of an unnatural female domination, which Paul was speaking to in the scripture. All right. So keep that in mind as we go through this, the, this portion of scripture together. The other thing was that Ephesus was a collection of home churches. They weren't meeting communally like us here. They, Paul taught out of, a, out of a, a, a meeting hall for a couple of years. But then it says that he ministered in Acts 20. Verse 20, from house to house. So Ephesus was a collection of house churches. Now where you have house churches not meeting communally together, you do have great opportunity, inverted commas, for misdirection to take place, domination to take place, and false teaching to take place. Which is why so much of the book of 1 Timothy speaks into proper doctrine, proper church order, and conducting yourself. All right. So I needed to just give you a bit of background Let's now jump into the text together, and then we're once again just going to take it portion by portion. But let's read 1 Timothy 2, verse 8 to 15. I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, 
And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. At this point, you can go, shoo. <laughs> but I will be going into the Greek words about certain scriptures over here. And let me just tell you, there's one version of the Bible that is better than any other version. And that is the original Greek manuscripts. Some people would say the King James Version or whatever their preferred version might be, the New King James or the, the New International Version or the English Standard Version or so many others. But the best version, the best, best version is the original Greek manuscripts. And so some English words have been put down here and the English words are correct. Your Bible is correct, but there's a depth there that is like an iceberg. We see the surface in terms of what is put here, but you go into the depth of the original Greek text and you get the fullness. And that is what we will be doing. But the first couple of scriptures I want to discuss with you is 1 Timothy 2, 9 to 10, where it says, In like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Now on the surface, that seems to say women are not allowed to in any way beautify themselves outwardly. That they should only have the inner beauty of Christ within themselves. But this is where I want to bring a direct comparison to a very similar portion of scripture written by Peter. Who happened to be the only apostle who was married by the way. So I think he had a little bit of a take on this that had some authority as well. And 1 Peter 3 verse 3 to 4 says... Do not let your adornment be merely outward. Look at the word merely outward. Arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. Peter is saying here, don't just let your beauty be outward. That is exactly what Paul was addressing as well in the church of Ephesus is saying, don't dress outwardly only in terms of what is considered beautiful. Be beautiful in your spirit, beautiful in your heart. Have a walk with the Lord. Embrace Him. Embrace His ways. Let Him clothe you with His beauty on the inside. And then Peter is saying, by all means, you are absolutely allowed to express your outward beauty, but let it be built on the foundation of an inner beauty. I want to read a portion of scripture to you out of Ezekiel. This is a description of how God himself dressed Israel. God is speaking prophetically to Israel. And this is his description of how he dresses Israel. Let's listen to how God dressed Israel. In Ephesians 16 verse 10 to 13, I'll read it to you. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen, covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown upon your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen, silk and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. Now why would God himself Clothe Israel so beautifully, even speaking prophetically, but so beautifully. And then expect his daughters in the New Testament to be a bunch of plain Janes. 
doesn't it seem like there's a, there, there, there's a rift there? There's something missing. And so I want to just affirm to you, ladies, enjoy your outward beauty. Rejoice in your outward beauty. Simply make sure that it is built upon the foundation of your first and foremost beauty, which is your walk and relationship with the Lord in your heart and spirit. Amen. Does that bless you? Amen. It blessed me too. Because reading it the first time, I was like, whoa. But uh, I was very, very encouraged myself out of what I found as I continued my study. But speaking along those lines, let's jump into our next portion of Scripture. Two little verses, two contentious little verses. But turned, they turned out to be such a deep encouragement as I went into the depth of what the Greeks said. 1 Timothy 2, verse 11 to 12. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Listen, that sounds incredibly harsh on the surface, but that is why we need to just go a little bit deeper. Remember the context I have spoken to you of the church in Ephesus and of the city of Ephesus, a city steeped in witchcraft and goddess worship with the rise of feminism. Paul is essentially bringing a balance here, but there's an even deeper message as we look at the Greek. When he is saying, let her learn in silence with all submission, that word silence there in the Greek is a specific Greek word. It is heisukia, heisukia. It is used only four times in the New Testament. Not every time silence is used. Another time heisukia is used is when Paul is speaking to the crowd in Acts 22 verse 2. And he begins to speak to them in Hebrew, and it says they became all the more quiet. These were Jews. They became all the more quiet when they heard him speak in Hebrew. And it speaks about a quiet attentiveness. It speaks about a teachableness and a quietness to be taught. Not a, you must be quiet, you can say nothing. It's not the silent, don't say a word. It's a silence implying be teachable, be submissive. And so that is what Paul is saying to these ladies at the church at Ephesus. Now, there was another portion of Scripture where uh, Paul, the same author, spoke to ladies about being quiet. And that was the church in Corinthians. I'm going to read the Scripture to you here. But before I read that Scripture to you, let me assure you, the cultural context of Corinthians was different to Ephesus. It wasn't the same across the Roman world. There was a general patriarchy of a very male-dominated um, society. But there were distinct differences in the cultures of various geographic groups. They were linked by Roman roads, but they did not have the kind of open access of communication we have today. So Paul, speaking to the Corinthian church, says this, Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive. As the law also says, And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. The silence there, the Greek word for silence there is a Greek word, sigeo. It's not hey, hey sukia. Two completely different Greek words. And the Greek word for sigeo there is to physically keep quiet. Now why was Paul asking the Corinthian ladies to keep quiet in the service in what seems such a harsh way? Well, the honest truth was women in the Roman Empire were certainly sidelined. They were treated like second-rate citizens. They were expected to stay in the home. They were never really part of public gatherings and public get-togethers in a normal context. 
Now the church is formed in Corinth and you've got three different cultures coming together. You've got the Roman culture, the Greek culture, and the Jews. These three distinct people groups come together under the roof for the first time ever they are meeting together. And not just that, women are included for the first time ever. The other thing is women in Roman times were uneducated. They were specifically passed over to learn any kind of education. That is how so-called second rate they were considered in the Roman Empire. And so you had these ladies in Corinth, so very different to Ephesus, coming together, not understanding what's going on, and asking questions of their husbands throughout the service, literally causing a physical disturbance. What's he saying? What's he mean? I don't understand. Explain it to me. Out of a genuine curiosity, you can't blame them. But Paul was saying, listen, be quiet, physically quiet in the service, and your husbands will explain things to you after the service. I'm sure it didn't stay like that. This was a letter Paul was writing to a new church that were going through birthing pains. And so he was physically helping them and teaching them the right way forward. In a couple of years' time after this epistle was written, I'm sure that they didn't need to still conduct themselves like that because just by what they were learning in church circles alone, they would come into a position where they would not be causing a disturbance because they would have been loved enough to be taught and to understand. And so you have two completely different Greek words, two completely different contexts. But how often this is used in many Christian circles to justify that a woman must actually not say anything in church based on the surface value of this, not taking the Greek into consideration and not taking the context into consideration. You know, just to affirm this, there's many occasions where Paul affirmed the ministry of ladies in the body of Christ. In Romans 16, in fact, there's many references, I'm going to mention three, where he commends a lady who has a distinct position of authority in the body. And the first is a lady named Phoebe. And he says in Romans 16 verse 1, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Sencria. Now you would say, oh, okay, servant. Guess what the Greek word there is. I will read it to you and you tell me what it sounds like. Diak onos. Diak onos. Sounds very much like deacon because it is deacon. And so he was saying, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a deacon of the church in Sencria. The exact same word diakonos is used in the rest of 1 Timothy. Every time deacon is mentioned, as we go further into 1 Timothy, deacon is going to be mentioned many times. You are going to see it's the Greek word diakonos. Exactly what Paul was referring to Phoebe. And he said, give her all assistance in the Lord. He goes on to mention a certain Julia in Romans 16 verse 7. He says, greet Adronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles and they were in Christ before I was. Did you get that? A woman's name is Junia and she with Andronicus, either they were married or they were brother and sister, were outstanding among the apostles. Now, there is a little bit of a controversy around Junior. Some translators, I suspect they are leaning in a different direction, says, well, the way you pronounce it, it could be Junius, which is male, all right? But I went and counted amongst the 63 English versions under Bible Gateway how many Juniuses there were to Junior. And there were 44 instances of junior to 14 of juniors. And so the distinct leaning 
is that it was Junia, a lady who was counted amongst the apostles. That is really throwing the cat amongst the chickens, but that is the word. I'm not mixing my own opinion in here. Please, by all means, go and do your own research yourself. But that are the, these are the facts that I'm sharing with you. But just in case, there's a little bit of a question in your mind about Junia. There's one other lady I want to mention and a specific action she took. Now, this lady is a name called Priscilla. She was married to Aquila. They were tent makers. They were friends with Paul. He stayed with them for about 18 months. They traveled with him. They ministered with him at Corinth and Ephesus. But there was an instance where Priscilla and Aquila came across a very zealous disciple who believed in Jesus, and his name was Apollos. Now, Apollos became a great apostle. He's mentioned in the, in the book of 1 Corinthians 3 where Paul is speaking to the Corinthians church and says to them, well, some are saying I'm of Apollos and some of Paul. He says, is Christ divided? In another scripture, he says, well, I, watered, uh, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So Apollos goes on to become a great apostle. But at the time, Aquila and, uh, Priscilla and Aquila come across Apollos. Um, it's a little bit before his release as an apostle. I want to read to you out of Acts 18, verse 25 to 26, this interaction. This man, speaking of Apollos, had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, let me tell you what took place there. They. It doesn't say Aquila took Apollos as the upcoming apostle, man to man, and left Priscilla on the sideline because only men can teach in the church. Aquila and Priscilla take a future apostle aside and they teach him the better way of the Lord. So, I just want to encourage you. There is much biblical evidence that a woman can have authority in God's house and should be given authority in his house as the Holy Spirit leads just as much as any man. And if you have any gripe about that, by all means, come to me with scripture, with the original Greek, as I have presented to you today. But I want to encourage you as the family of God that we are a family together. There is no more slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ and we have all been anointed and we have all got a calling. We have all got a destiny to fulfill. There's no domination in the family of God, whether of women over men or men over women. Amen. Amen. I don't know how many of you were here last week when the Mongolian team was standing on the stage. And the main speaker was a lady. I think her name was Nke, something like Nke. Um, and I've I got to admit to you, I had sweaty eyes. I wasn't crying, but my eyes got a bit sweaty for a while. Okay? You know, maybe you can relate to that. But there was such a distinct ministry this woman was operating in. She was blessed. There was an anointing. It moved me so deeply. No one's going to tell me that lady should not be up speaking on a stage. She, was a, she is a church planter. Amen. 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 I mean, she and her sister planted a church. They're about to plant another. By their fruit, you shall know them. But rest assured, what Paul is saying here in these scriptures is not the repression of women. He's bringing balance culturally as well as 
with a scriptural direction. Now, one last portion of scripture. Please just give me another two or three minutes. I'm almost done. You've been so very patient, and I bless you for that. But let's finish out our time together. 1 Timothy 2, verse 13 to 15 says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. All right, now that's quite a mouthful. But what we are looking here, what we are looking at here, is that God has also created families with roles and functions for the member of that family. And there is no doubt that a man is to be the priest in his home. He is to lead his family, and a wife is to be in submission to her husband. That's entirely scriptural. It's written in 1 Peter 3, 1, wives submit to your husbands. All right. So Paul is saying, yeah, Adam was made first. He was made as the head of the home. Eve was, Eve was created after him and followed him. And yes, she was deceived by the serpent first. Let me tell you, it was a transgression against authority. She didn't discuss with her husband the so-called offer she had been made by the servant. She made a unilateral decision, a huge decision by herself, without discussing with her husband what the situation was. She partook of that fruit. But here's the interesting thing. When she partook of the fruit, she didn't fall. Their eyes, the fall, only took place when Adam followed her example. Because she spoke to Adam and he listened to her. And he himself stepped into obedience. He is just as much much to blame as she was. If he had taken a stand in that moment and said, no, what you did was incorrect, but let us go to the Lord, we might have had a very different human history until this point. But the fact is that she made a unilateral decision. Adam followed her in it, and then their eyes were opened and the fall took place. But there is something I really want to bring across here. Submission is not domination. The Trinity himself follows the principle of submission. And let me explain it to you. Father God is God, Jesus is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Are we all agreed on that? Are they all the same God? Amen. So that the Father is not more God than Jesus. Jesus is not more God than the Father or the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not more God than the Father or Jesus. We can agree they're the same. Amen. Yet, Jesus submitted himself to the Father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays. What does he pray? He says, not my will, but yours be done. In John 14, verse 28, he says, You should rejoice that I go to my Father, for my Father is greater than I. He's not saying Father God is more God than I. He's saying, I have submitted myself under the Father's authority. But it doesn't end there. Because the Holy Spirit is submitted to Jesus and the Father. In John 16, verse 7, Jesus speaking to his disciples at the Last Supper says that if I go away, it's better for you that I go away. If I go away, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. I will send the Holy Spirit to you. And so there we see the Holy Spirit submitted to Jesus. And finally, in John 14, verse 26, Jesus speaking once again at the same occasion of the Last Supper, 
he speaks to the disciples and he says, the Father will send the Holy Spirit in my, in Jesus' name. The Father will send the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. And so there we see the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all just as much God as each other. They are equal, but there is yet submission. And there's a difference here. It's the difference between submission and subservience. Now, many here might know what that word means, but let me explain it to you. Submission is to come voluntarily under the authority of another as an equal. Subservience is to obey as someone being less important or having less value than the one you serve. That is the difference. It is unfortunately being abused in many marriages and families where a man would say, Submit, woman, I'm the priest. What nonsense. What nonsense. You know what Ephesians 5 verse 25 says? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life for her. So a husband is meant to love his family and lead, and lead with integrity and honor. And a wife is to submit to her husband, but by all means as an equal, not in subservience. And so Paul is saying in these scriptures, stay in your lane. She'll be saved in childbearing. It's not just childbearing. A wife and a mother has a part to bring to a family that is just as important as her husband, but it's different. He can't bear the children, regardless of what modern wokeism tells you, all right? God made them male and female, he made them, and that's the end of the story. Amen. And so a lady can only perform certain things that she can do a man, and even the children are to be, to be submitted to their parents and then in later years to honor their parents when they're out of their house. But there is submission, not subservience, and that is what Paul is saying here. I want to end with one final scripture. It is out of the book of Job. Now Job had lost everything, been proven faithful and God restored to him. And when he, he had everything restored to him, it says here in Job 42, Verse 15, that in all the land were found no woman so beautiful as the daughters of Job. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. Let me say to you ladies, there is no greater beauty than the beauty of Christ. There's no more beautiful woman than a woman that has been redeemed by Christ, by the beauty he has bestowed on you. Amen. And I would say to all the ladies here, that you are beautiful because of who Christ has made you to be. And as such, you share an inheritance with all of your brothers in our Father's house. Amen. Amen. So once again, thank you for your patience. I want to close out in prayer and then I will release the service. And so Father, I thank you for the opportunity to share your word today. Thank you, Lord, that you love your people you love your sons, you love your daughters, you love your house. Lord, it is quite possible to have a position of authority in a church as a lady and then yet to be submitted in love to her husband. This is the order of the Trinity. This is the order of your kingdom. And I thank you for all the truth that you blessed us with out of your word today. May your people go deeper into it. I release them now, Lord. I pray your blessing be upon them. I pray your peace be upon them. And I pray that your joy would be their strength in the week ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 God bless you all. Have a good week ahead and go well. Thank you.